We return to the Psalms tonight, where we have made our way after all this time to the home stretch of this altar, to the final five Psalms in the collection, and tonight to Psalm 146. So turn with me to Psalm 146 now, which we will read beginning to end. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes and mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Father, I pray that our praise and our hope would be fixed on you because of what we hear in this psalm tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may remember that we've talked previously about what are called the Hallelujah Psalms, ten psalms sprinkled throughout the latter third of the Psalter, which are not only psalms of praise, but which actually begin, all ten of them, with the exclamation Hallelujah in Hebrew, or praise the Lord, as we have it in the English. And thus they are called the Hallelujah Psalms, the psalms of the Lord's praise, in other words, Now, of course, these ten are not the only ten psalms of praise in this marvelous collection of the Psalter, but they do stand out, what with their opening cries of hallelujah, and with eight of the ten also closing with that same Hebrew exclamation. And five of the ten, and indeed five of the eight, are stacked together right here at the end of the Psalter, right here as these final five numbers in the collection. Perhaps, as we've said in recent weeks, as a kind of reminder that as in the Psalter, so in the life of the Christian, a day is coming when all our songs will become hallelujah. And so the psalmist begins here with hallelujah, with praise the Lord, and that very simply is the first of just two main headings tonight. Praise the Lord in verses 1 and two, praise the Lord, Lord in all caps, or more directly, praise Yah, short for Yahweh, the memorial name of God, hallelujah, praise Yah, praise Yahweh is what is being said here at the beginning of the psalm. If we translated it straight over into the English, praise I am. Praise the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Praise the God whose name is I Am, the God who simply is, the God who had no beginning, and the God who will have no end. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. 
And notice that the psalmist not only begins with this cry of praise to the self-existent God, but that he continues in verse 1 by urging himself to engage in such praise. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So now he's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself in verse 1b. He's urging himself to open his lips and to sing God's praises. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And that, it seems to me, would probably be a good habit for us to adopt as well, to preach to ourselves that we must praise the Lord. Because we might awaken on a Sunday morning or get off work on a Wednesday afternoon, and our initial disposition, alas, may not always be the disposition of praise. And so before we come into this building or perhaps as we sit down for family worship, or even in our private devotions, we may just need sometimes to take ourselves by the hand, as it were, or to look ourselves in the mirror and to say to ourselves, to preach to ourselves, praise the Lord, O my soul. He's worth it, isn't he? And now is the time for you to do it. So get ready, soul. Put your heart in the posture of praise. Open your mouth and sing. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And then look at the psalmist's further commitment to praise there in verse 2. He's not just going to praise God in this psalm or when he's in a hallelujah frame of mind or when life is all peaches and cream. His commitment is much more solid than that, isn't it? As long as he has breath, verse 2, he says, that breath will be exhaled in the praising of the Lord. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. It's something like that old South Asian hymn that some of us grew up singing I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And that's what the psalmist is saying here about praise. I have decided to praise the Lord, verse 2, no turning back. No turning back. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And so the psalmist praises Yahweh and he urges himself to praise the Lord in verse 1. And then he commits in verse 2 to praise the Lord as long as he lives. And I hope you have that kind of commitment. No turning back. No turning back. As Matt Redman put it back in the 1990s, some of you will remember it. Praise him in the morning. Praise him in the evening. Praise him when I'm young and when I'm old. Praise him when I'm laughing. Praise him when I'm grieving. Praise him every season of the soul. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. I hope that is your heart and your commitment. And it's the first thing in this psalm and in so many other psalms as well. Praise the Lord. But then the second main cry of the psalm, the one that we're going to spend by far the most of our time on, is not only that we must praise the Lord, but that we must also hope in the Lord, verses 3 through 10. Hope in the Lord. And let's just begin with verses 3, 4, and 5. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, 
his God. Hope in the Lord, verse 5. And by the same token, on the flip side of the same coin, do not hope in princes. Or in our circumstances, do not hope in politicians. Do not hope in judges. Do not hope in philanthropists. Do not hope in man, period. And let's just start there. Note carefully that the psalmist does not say we should not care about the affairs of the state, nor does he say that we should not be concerned about those who shape our laws and our culture, because the Bible elsewhere commands us, doesn't it, to pray for our political leaders and to submit to them. And it also tells us without critique that it's normal for people to groan when they have poor leadership, Proverbs 29, 2 and to rejoice when the godly are in high places. And all that paints a picture of people in general and of God's people included caring deeply about what happens in the halls of government and in the high places of the land. And so Christians should vote, and we should pray, and we should participate in government, and we should care about what the princes of our land are up to and about what sorts of persons ought to be our princes. So don't mishear me tonight and don't mishear the psalmist. He does not say, do not care about who is prince. He does not say, do not pay attention to what the princes do. He does not say, do not participate in the prince's realm. But he does say, very clearly, do not trust in princes. Do not praise the Lord tonight at 7 and then go home and watch the debate at 9 and act like all is going to hell because of the foolishness that you hear. Care about what you hear, yes. Be gravely concerned by much that you hear, but do not act as though our hope, or lack thereof, lies in the halls of human government. That's what the psalmist is saying. Do not act as though the sky is falling. Don't become overcome with fear because of who the next potential prince or princes may be. Because you're not trusting, I hope, in princes, but in the Lord. And by the same token, if God should give us another George Washington or even a president after the manner of King David himself, do not act as though your hope even then rests on the shoulders of a mere man, even the best of men. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. Now, since it does not appear to me anyway, as if we have another David or another Washington on the horizon, I want to return for a moment to the incongruity that may exist for many a Christian tonight between what they did at 7 p.m. or what they did on Sunday at 11 a.m. and what they will be doing tonight between 9 and 10. Does it make any sense to sing with Stuart Townend, as we did on Sunday, that Jesus is Lord of history and then to agonize in fear over this election season or over the future of the Supreme Court as though some mere mortal named Hillary or Donald were able to take the reins out of Christ's omnipotent hands? Again, I don't say we should not care about who is president or about who they will appoint to the Supreme Court or about who controls the Congress as though those were matters of insignificance. They're not insignificant at all. And I don't say we shouldn't take action as best we can to put the best possible people in place, nor do I even say that we shouldn't groan, Proverbs 29, 2, if and when the unrighteous become our rulers. 
But I do say, and David says, and God says, that we should not trust in these mere earthly princes. We should not put our hope in them for better or for worse. And so we should check ourselves at this time in our nation's history to ascertain whether we really believe the things that we sing about when we come into this building. I'm going to vote on Tuesday, November 8th, and I'm going to watch with interest as the results come across the screen that night. But the question which this psalm begs is, am I going to wake up on Wednesday, November 9th, wringing my hands, murmuring, mumbling in my beard, fearful and fretful, as though the American president or the Congress or the Supreme Court are Lord of history? Or will I wake up that day as every other and still be able to confidently say, I will praise the Lord while I live, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Yes, let us remember that these princes of whom we are so afraid or alternately over whom we are tempted to fawn, let us remember that they are mere mortals, verse 3, and that their bodies will soon lie in the grave, verse 4, eaten by the same earthworms that feasted on Hitler and Hussein and Sennacherib and the pharaohs and so on. And Washington returned to dust too, and so has King David. And are these the men in whom we should place our trust? Or do we trust in King Jesus, who upholds all things by the word of his power, and whom the grave could not hold, and whom this very Psalter prophesied would not undergo decay? Man, even at the princely level, is fading. He is mortal, in other words, verse 3. He returns to the earth. Even his thoughts perish, verse 4. He's fading, I say. And he's also feeble, verse 3. He's powerless. He is ineffectual in the most important affairs of our lives, in whom there is no salvation. And therefore, he or she who hopes in such men, even of the princely class, he who looks for a future and a hope from the hands of rulers and judges will eventually be disappointed. But how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And there, after reminding us where our trust must not be placed, there in verse 5 is the positive statement which forms the backbone of this second point of the sermon, hope in the Lord. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The God of Jacob, he is called here in verse 5. Do you remember Jacob? Jacob is another name for Israel, of course, so that the God of Jacob means the God of the nation of Israel. But there was a time when the nation of Israel was just one man, Jacob, and his family. But one son was missing, presumed dead by his father. And then there was famine in the land so that all of them were threatened with death. 
And then when the sons went down to Egypt in search of food, another of Jacob's sons was arrested and left behind. And a third, the youngest, was now being summoned to return and to present himself before the governor who did not appear all that friendly. And Jacob bemoaned his situation just like we are often tempted to bemoan ours. And he said, all these things are against me. It appears that Jacob had taken his eyes, at least for a moment, off of his God and begun fixing them on princes and circumstances and mere men. And yet, the God of Jacob came through just the same, didn't he? And Jacob and his family were not only saved from the famine, but reunited in ways that they could have never imagined. And the psalmist tells us here that blessed is he whose help is the God of of Jacob. And then fast forward to another descendant of Jacob, who, if anyone could have ever truly spoken that all these things are against me, it would have been this man. Because if there was ever a time when the princes and the rulers and the courts and the politicians had run amok, it was during the three years of earthly ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, as my friend Anthony wrote, Last week, because God reigned over the courts that condemned his son to crucifixion, we can still trust him with the wicked courts of today. Because God reigned over the courts, the twisted mock justice that sent his son to the cross, we can trust that he still reigns over the courts today. Again, that's not an argument that we shouldn't care about who becomes president or whom they appoint to the Supreme or other courts. Of course we should care, and deeply so. But Anthony is reminding us that even if the courts are as far gone as we think they might become, God is still on the throne. And as he did during the days of Pilate and the first century Sanhedrin, he will work out his good pleasure even today. And how blessed is he who, while he does not bury his head in the sand as to the important steps being taken in our land today, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. So we're, we're seeing two things in Psalm 146. Praise the Lord, verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 and following, hope in the Lord. And I just pause here to remind you that they go together. If we can stand in this room and open these hymnals and sing about a God who is on the throne, then we ought to actually hope in that God and not in the mere men who are but feeble and frail and who could not derail God's plans of old and who will not redirect his agenda today either. And nor should we lose hope because we realize that we're led by princes who cannot be trusted. For no prince is the source of ultimate hope save Jesus. And then notice, still under this second main heading of hoping in the Lord, notice that we're given in the latter half of the psalm a whole host of positive reasons for doing so. In other words, we must hope in the Lord not simply because man is not an adequate place at which to drop the anchor of our trust, verses 3 and 4, but positively we must hope in the Lord because in verses 5 and following, God is a place where we can drop the anchor of our hope. 
How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Now, even if the psalmist had not said anything in verses 3 and 4 by way of warning about our tendency to trust in princes who are not the Lord, this would still be quite an impressive list of reasons why we should trust, hope, in praise the Lord. Because he made everything we see, verses 6a and b, because he keeps his covenants, verse 6c, because he shows mercy to the weak in verses 7, 8, and 9, because he loves those who are upright in verse 8c, because he derails the plans of the wicked in verse 9c, because he is seated on his throne, verse 10, and will remain there forever. All these are reasons why we should praise the Lord and why we should hope in the Lord. But when the psalmist says all these things, he does say them in the shadow of what he has just said about not trusting princes. And because he says these things in the shadow of the warning not to trust in princes, it makes me wonder if perhaps what the psalmist is doing here is listing a series of ways in which we are prone to want to trust in princes and reminding us that it's actually God who does these things for us. Just think that out with me, especially from verses 7, 8, and 9. What do we have in these three verses, 7, 8, and 9? We have words about social justice in verse 7, about health care in verse 8a, about the promotion of morality in verse 8c, about immigration in verse 9a, about social welfare in verse 9b, and about the punishment of evildoers in verse 9c. Social justice, health care, morality, immigration, social welfare, punishment of wrongdoing. Maybe you've heard some of those topics talked about before in the nightly news cycles and in the political speeches. Why? Because they've been reading Psalm 146? I doubt it. Why? Why are these things talked about? Because these are the kinds of issues to which we are prone to trust, or at least to want to trust, our princes for. These are the sorts of things that we'd like our rulers to care about and to get right. But God is saying in this psalm and about these issues, look, first of all, to me. You may want your princes to care about these matters. You may want to look to your princes in these matters. And your princes ought to care about these things and get them right. But whether they do or whether they don't, you must ultimately look to me for hope in these things. The politicians may do their part or they may not. But at the end of the day, whether we have a Washington or a Clinton, whether we have a David or a Donald, it is the Lord, verses 7, 8, and 9, 
who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord is the one who does these things. The Lord is the one who brings about justice. The Lord is the one who heals. The Lord is the one who meets people in their needs. The Lord, not just the prince. So let's pray that our princes, our politicians, our judges would work with the Lord and not against him. Let's vote for those whom we believe will. Let's grieve when they don't. But let us hope not in the princes, but in the Lord, who is the one who ultimately does these things. And to help you hope in him, let me just read to you from the New Testament for a moment. While I urge you, as I read from the New Testament, to keep your eyes on these verses in the Old, verses 7, 8, and 9, and see if what I read doesn't sound like what you're looking at on the page. See if it doesn't sound like We're reading from the same book. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord." Now when John, while in prison, heard of the work, works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to him, Go and report to John what you see, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Doesn't that sound a lot like Psalm 146? Here, you see, is the prince in whom we may place our trust. Here is the Lord himself pitching his tent among us and doing the very things that Psalm 146 says that the Lord does. And the miracles of Jesus in his earthly ministry are reminders that this is the sort of God we have, the sort of God in whom we can hope, even when he's not on earth in the flesh, and even when ungodly princes are sitting on earth's thrones. And the miracles of Jesus are a foretaste, too, of when the Son of Man will return, and when the blessing of which Galilee and Judea got a taste 2,000 years ago will spread the world over so that there will no longer be any oppression or hunger, or blindness, or imprisonment, and no one will ever again again be a stranger, or an orphan, or a widow. And of course, the miracles of Jesus, described so remarkably here in verses 7, 8, and 9, are also reminders of how Christ is also at work performing commensurate miracles in the depths of our souls as well. Think it out, hunger, verse 7b imprisonment at the end of verse 7, blindness in verse 8, 
strangers in verse 9. Each of those conditions is painted onto the canvas of the New Testament as a word portrait of what it is like to be lost without Christ. Hungry, imprisoned, blind, strangers. And each of those problems is solved when we come to know Christ, who gives food to the hungry, who sets the prisoners free, who opens the eyes of the blind, who protects the strangers and grafts them into his covenant people. And so the blessings of the Lord described here in Psalm 146 are not just a vague sense that God is a nice God who sometimes does nice things. These blessings are a full-color portrait, rather, of the ministry of Christ in the soul and of the glorious physical blessing under which we will live when he returns. And they are a portrait of the God who is seated on heaven's throne even now and more than capable of doing and being all that we need. So then, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord.